0: Can't you see what love has done? Listen, one of the greatest gifts that love, that the love of God gives us in this world is the gift of friendship. Uh, Any of you know that from experience? Okay, I feel bad for you, but I I know. (laughs) Listen, a friend is someone who you want to be beside you in life. Uh, You want them there when things are too much for you. And you want them there when things are so good that you just want somebody to celebrate with. And you even want them there when life is ordinary, because when they're there with you, life is better. And I want you to know that one of the greatest gifts which God gives is friendship. And the very best friendship, listen to this, is the friendship which doesn't just uh, celebrate with you and, and weep with you and walk with you. But in all three of those areas, the best friendship is the one that shows you what God is like. I wonder if some of you know that blessing of having a friend who helps you know God. I do, and that's the man who's here on my right side. His name is Vito, and I want you to welcome him. Would you welcome Vito? For more than 20 years, Vito has been someone who I've known is always at my side. And the best part of Vito is that he helps me see that God is gracious always and through and through. And this morning, Vito is going to help us see God and help us see that God is gracious through and through. Mm-hmm. My dear friend, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Love you. Love you.
1: The way that I want to think about that together with you, that God is gracious, that God invites people in is through what is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. The story that we know of as the parable of the prodigal son. And it begins like this. There was a man who had two sons. And I know that many of you know this story. Especially if you grew up in the church, you know this story. Maybe even right now, you're sort of anticipating what kind of sermon may be coming. That's okay. The people who first heard this story from Jesus... They'd heard stories like this before, too. There was a man who had two sons. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the son of the promise. He was the one that they were looking for. He was the one who had God's glory all around him. He sort of had a weak character. And his brother Ishmael was a wild beast of a man, always running out into the wilderness. And Isaac himself, he was a man who had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was, Esau was a man who was impatient. He was impetuous. He was angry. He was out there in the fields. He was a man out hunting game. Jacob was a man who spent his time inside. He was a man who was quieter, but he was no less ambitious. And these two boys, those two sons, they fought for their parents' love their whole life. There was a man who had two sons. I know that many of you have heard this story. Even if you're not religious, you've heard stories like that. Two sons who always competed, two daughters, two sisters who always loved each other, but there was friction. There was a man who had two sons. That's the story that Jesus tells. We've all heard that story. But the context that Jesus gives it in, in Luke 15 is a little different. When Jesus tells this story, this parable of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. Do you know where where he told it? He told it at a dinner table. The text tells us that when Jesus gave this parable, that between his shoulders was a plate, and on the plate was a big heap of hummus, and there was, I'm paraphrasing, there were olives, and there was lamb, and there was bread, and he was feasting, and he was not feasting alone. He was feasting with his friends, his friends who were all around him. And some of his friends were very, very rich people. And they would probably paid for that meal. They had been helping Jesus in his ministry. And some of his friends were very, very poor. Some of the friends that were there at that table were people that nobody else wanted to touch. They'd been on the margins of their society, their culture, for a really long time. Nobody spoke to them or wanted to touch them, but Jesus did. He sought people out like that and he would touch people that nobody else wanted to touch and he brought them in and now they were sitting down and feasting with Jesus and they understood their connection to him to make life brand new. There were some people at that table who knew far too well what it meant to be touched, but not in love. And Jesus had found them too and he had brought them in and there they are in this circle, rich people and poor people and people who grew up religious and people who didn't have any idea what religion was about. And they're all there together as a family with Jesus at the head, brought in by his love. But they weren't the only people that were there at the feast. There were some people there who were standing up, not sitting down with Jesus, but standing up. And they were there to observe, and they were suspicious, and they were trying to figure out who Jesus was. Some of them were Pharisees. And if you've ever been in church, you know that when you hear Pharisee, you're supposed to think black-headed villain, people who are mean, people who are extra-religious and snooty. But the Pharisees weren't bad people. The Pharisees loved the Bible. And the Pharisees wanted people to live their life according to God's commands. They weren't bad people. They gave away a tenth of their money to the poor and to the temple. But they're there because they're not sure about Jesus. Jesus has been making claims and doing things that nobody would ever seen before. And so those are the two groups who are there in the presence of Jesus when he says, there was a man who had two sons, and he wants us to understand that father in the story as representing God inviting both of those parties in, both of those people the people who are at the very margins of society and the people who find themselves right in the middle and that they're all welcomed in. That's what he wants the people there to understand and he wants all of us to understand it too, every person that's been brought here. So let's look at the story together. The parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that is the parable of the prodigal son. Except it's not the parable of the prodigal son. It never says that in the text. Jesus never titled it the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus almost never titles his parables. There's one, maybe two that he titled in all of the Bible. This is not one of them. Furthermore, the word prodigal is never used in this parable. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal. When was the last time you used that word in conversation? That is not a word that we use very often. And when we do use it, we use it in reference to this story. We've taken this story and applied it to the definition that we have of prodigal. So when we use the word, we use it like this. Oh, there is that person that we know who's prodigal. They've left their home. We talk about young people who used to keep the rules and now they've run away and they become prodigal. But that's not what prodigal means at all. Prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Prodigal means that you have resources and you don't use them well. Prodigal means that you have a lot of money and you're pretty wasteful with it. So how was it that this story that I just read got universally thought of as and called by everyone the parable of the prodigal son? Well, a long time ago. In fact, it was 380 AD to be exact. There was a man named Jerome who loved the Bible, and he wanted it translated into the language that everybody used, or a lot of people, which was Latin. It was originally written in Hebrew and in Greek, and he wanted it translated in Latin, and he was very good with languages, and so that's what he did. He translated the entire Bible into Latin, and the title, or the ter- or the uh, name of that translation is the Vulgate. There's Translation that was used by so many people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, when Jerome translated it, of course, the only way you could have a copy of the Vulgate was to have somebody hand write it out. And somewhere along the way, a couple of hundred years after Jerome translated it, one of the monks who was translating the Bible got to Luke 15. And when he wrote Luke 15 at the very top above Luke 15 in Latin, he wrote the parable of the prodigal son. And the reason he must have done that is he must have read this story, and he must have thought that verse 13 was the key to the whole thing. He must have thought the most important thing going on in this story was verse 13, where it says about the younger son, he squandered his property in reckless living. He squandered it. He was given a lot of money by the father, and he didn't use it well. He thought, that must be what's going on In this parable, that's why Jesus told it. So it became the parable of the prodigal son to just a few people because not that many people took it up after that. It wasn't until the 1400s that the word prodigal even came into the English language. The prodigal son as a term didn't come in until the 1500s. But these things have a way of creeping in. Somebody in the 1500s made a translation into French of the Bible and they used the Vulgate. And what do you know? One of the copies that they used was one of those copies where a monk had written the parable of the prodigal son. And so in the table of the contents of that French Bible, that translator wrote the parable of the prodigal son. And then somebody made an English translation of the Bible indebted to that French translation. It's called the Matthew Bible. Almost nobody's ever heard of it, but it's one of the early English translations. And in that early English translation, somebody wrote the parable of the prodigal son. And then somebody made a translation called the Geneva Bible. And a lot more people have heard of that. It was very popular a long time ago with Puritans and pilgrims and other people with buckles on their hats. And that, somebody wrote the parable of the prodigal son. And from the Geneva Bible, it went into the King James Bible, which is the Bible that your great-grandma Mildred used to memorize her verses. And from there, it was all done. It was the parable of the prodigal son. Except it's not the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus never calls it that. It never says that at all in this text. And the fact that we now are all calling it, the parable of the prodigal son, tips us off in all of the wrong directions as we try to figure out what this parable means for us. Because first of all, Jesus says very clearly who this parable is about, and it's not the younger son. Who does he say the parable is about? There was a man who had two sons. This parable is about the man. He wants us to have our eyes on the man. And instead, if we begin with the parable of the prodigal son, we're looking at that younger son. Furthermore, when we look at that son, what are we looking for? We're looking for him to be prodigal. We're looking for him to run away or to be wasteful or to be extravagant. What should the title of this parable be? I don't know. There are a lot of different titles that people have proposed for this, Jesus doesn't give a title, but the closest he comes to giving a title to this parable comes when he does talk about the younger son through the voice of the father, and the voice of the father is not concerned with all those bad things that the younger son goes away. All that stuff that he does, all that wasteful living, all the prostitutes, all the terrible stuff, that's not the stuff that the father is concerned with. The father is concerned with two things. He mentions them twice. He mentions it in verse 24 and he mentions it again in verse 32 at the end. What are the two things that the father is concerned about his younger son? That his son was dead and that his son was lost. His son was dead and lost. Do you see how different that is than being prodigal? Because what is the opposite of prodigal? If prodigal is wasteful living, what is the opposite of that? The opposite of that is wise living. It is using your resources wisely. It's doing a good job with what God has given you. If you are prodigal, what is the remedy for being prodigal? Well, the remedy is, we'll pull it together. Come on, you can do better than that. You need to do a little bit better with what God has given you, and the remedy would be do a better job. But what's the remedy for being dead? What is the remedy for being lost? The only remedy there is for being dead is to be resurrected. And the only remedy there is for being lost is for somebody to come find you. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. The issue for this younger son is that he is lost and he was dead. This is about being lost. And we know that also because if you look at the rest of Luke 15, Jesus is telling all sorts of stories. They're all about the same thing. They're all about being lost. There's a sheep that is lost. And Jesus talks about a shepherd who is crazy enough to leave 99, by the way, not like the hymn, in the sheepfold. No, he leaves them in the wilderness to go get the one. The remedy for being a lost sheep is to have a shepherd come find you. He tells a story about a woman who loses one coin out of 10 and she turns her house upside down to find the one. The remedy for being a lost coin is just to be found. And the remedy for being a lost child is to have a father come and find you, to look out for you and to bring you back home. Think of how many days that father must have stood or sat on the front of his house and looked out. Early in the morning, he would go out while he was having his coffee, look out over the horizon, look for his son thinking, thinking, praying, crying after dinner every night, looking out at the horizon. Is there someone coming over the road? Think about how often he would have had to have done that to have been there the day that the younger son comes back. This isn't the parable of the prodigal son. This story is about being lost and it's about being dead and it's about the only remedy for it, which is to have a father who will bring you back in. And if the story is about being prodigal, it has nothing to say to the elder brother at all. The elder brother might as well not even be in the story. But Jesus is trying to show us something here. It's not only the younger son, the younger brother who is lost and who is dead. The elder brother is in the same exact situation. These brothers are in the same sinking boat. We are meant to see that both of these brothers are very, very much the same. And Jesus does a really excellent job of showing us that because what's the same about these brothers? Almost everything, where do we see them all? Or where do we see them all the time? They're always outside the house. They're on the porch. What are they always doing out there on the porch? Arguing with their dad. And what are they arguing about? The exact same thing. You need to give me more stuff. At the very beginning, the younger brother says, I want my share in the, of the inheritance. I think you've been holding out on me. I want my stuff. The very end of the story, what's the elder brother say? You never gave me a goat. You didn't give me anything. Both sons, both brothers saying, you have not given me what is due to me. And what does the father say to both of them? The exact same thing to both sons. Everything that you have is mine. Everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have is yours. He's a lot more specific with the younger son because he says, my robe is yours, my ring is yours, my sandal is yours, my best fatted calf is yours, my house is yours, everything. He's more comprehensive with the elder brother. Everything that I have is yours. This isn't the parable of the prodigal son. And if it is, then it doesn't have anything to say to elder brothers, those of us who've kept the rules, you know? And this elder brother has kept the rules. He's never been prodigal. He's always done the right thing. He got really good grades in high school. He was the captain of the swim team. (laughs) He got into a great college and did really well there. And after college, he applied to business school and he got into the best schools. He got into Wharton. He got into Harvard. But he didn't go to any of those places. You know where he went to business school? Nebraska. And do you know why he went to Nebraska? Because he got a full ride. And he didn't want to take out student loans because he was frugal. He's not prodigal. And because Nebraska had a special emphasis on agriculture at their business school. And he always knew he was going to come back and take care of his dad's farm because that's what elder brothers do. When you read the story, when you think about it, do you identify with one or other of the brothers? You know, I love thinking about this story with people. If you identify with one of them or the other, I think that's a great thing. Because that's why Jesus tells these stories. He wants us to see in these stories, he wants us to see ourselves. And he wants us to see God. And he wants us to enter imaginatively these stories that he gives us to be able to think about who God is and who we are. And so maybe you look at these stories and you think, I'm an elder brother. I've always kept the rules, I've always done the right thing. That's always been me. Some other people, you might look at this and you say, I'm a prodigal. I've always run. I've always wanted to be free. I've always had these desires. If you know those things about yourself, that is a good thing. If you know yourself to be a younger brother and you have all these desires and you have all these hungers and you've always wanted to run, that's a good thing to know. And it's good because then you know what it is will take you away from the father, away from home. You know that those are the things that will kill you. Those hungers, those desires. And wait, listen, I'm not saying that those hungers and desires are bad things. That desire we have for joy and for release and for freedom and for connection and for love and affection, those are all good desires. It's not the desires that will kill you. It's trying to get fed away from God's presence and power. It's running away from God and trying to get fed somewhere else. And like this younger son, you might run away and you might find yourself fed for a while, for a day, or for a week, or for a month, or for a year, but eventually the inheritance runs out. And you'll find yourself with the veil removed, finally seeing that what your hunger was really about was God's love and God's presence and God being with you. So if you're a younger brother, that's a good thing to know that about yourself. And if you're an elder brother, that's a good thing to know too. The ways that you want to do right and be right and keep yourself together, and keep up appearances, you'll know that that's what will kill you. Because those things are good, just like those other desires, but those things which are good, if they pull you away from God's presence, if they pull you away from God's power and love in your life, if you use doing good and being good as a defense against the dependence that all of us have upon God, Because what both sons really need here is they need to be found and they need to be brought back in. And sometimes I think that younger brothers are the ones that have it a little bit easier because if you're a younger brother and you wake up and you don't know where you are, well, you're clearly lost, (laughs) you know? I kind of have a heart for younger sons. I know quite a few younger brothers and younger sons in my life. I have a heart for them and I think it's a little bit easier For younger brothers and younger sons to know how much they need to be brought back in. When you know that you have hurt people around you and been hurt. When you know you have run far, you know that you feel you need to be brought back home. Sometimes I think it might be a little bit harder for those of us who are elder brothers. Because while I have a heart for younger brothers, I think I'm kind of more of an elder brother. I mean, I am a pastor, you know. And it might be a little harder for elder brothers, Because how do you know that you need to get home if you don't think you're lost? And how do you know that you need to ask forgiveness if you don't believe that you've done anything wrong? Both of these brothers need to be found. Both of these brothers need to be brought back home. And now we turn our eyes to the father because that's what Jesus has wanted us to do from the very beginning. There was a man who had two sons and I want you to see this father out on the stoop He's humbling himself and even humiliating himself, bringing these sons back in, wanting so badly for both of them to understand that they belong, that there is a feast and it's being thrown for both of them. I hope that every single one of you understand yourselves to be a son or a daughter that God is welcoming home. I think all of us probably have a little bit of elder brother and a little bit of younger brother in us. But whatever side you may fall you are invited back in. You are called back in. Don't stay outside. Come inside where the feast is. This father says everything that he has is yours. And you don't have to cook up a speech like the younger son. And if you're kind of impetuous and snotty like the elder brother and demanding things, you never gave me a goat. Who wants a goat? Apparently this guy does. He didn't ever get one. And he didn't get a goat because he had everything to begin with. So whether you are a younger brother or an elder brother, I want to commend you to come back home into the Father's presence where there is a feast and you're the guest of honor. Amen? Amen. That was a pretty good sermon, do you think? (laughs) Do you think that was a good sermon? I'm just kidding. That's That's terrible, right? I should stop right now. But there's, exactly, I'm an elder brother. I did good. But there's seven minutes and 45 seconds left. And there's more going on in the story. Because when this younger son comes back, what gets him back in? It's the love of the father. And the father invites him back in, how? With a kiss and with a hug and being given everything. He's invited back in, but before he gets in to have this feast, what does the father start to do with him? The father starts to play this elaborate game of dress-up. He invites the younger son. He said, before you come in, you get to come in freely. Every single one of you get to come in freely to God's presence. This younger son is finding this out. And before he comes in, the father, who is a little bit cracked in the head, says, I want him to wear the very best robe. Whose robe would that have been? It's the father's, it's his. So he gives him the very best robe. Now he looks a little bit like the father. And he says, I want him to wear the ring. What's the ring? It's probably the signet ring of the family. It's got a little crest on it. Now he can sign contracts. He can do business for the family. He's got the ring back on. He's been there for 20 minutes. His track record isn't great with decision-making. But the father doesn't care. Now he's back in the family. He's got the robe on and he's got the ring on. He's starting to look a lot like the father. Then he puts sandals on. He doesn't look like a slave anymore because now he's wearing clothes. Slaves don't wear clothes. If you've been to Hogwarts, you know that. He's not a slave anymore. He's a son and he gets welcomed back in and he looks like the father. When you are welcomed back into God's presence, when you are called in by God's grace, which is absolutely free. You are welcomed in. There's a golden ticket. It's got your name on it. You get to be with the father. Then the father does this really strange thing. He plays dress up and he says, I want you to look like me. I want you to be like me. The father is just telling this son this very same thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Be perfect, just like my father. in heaven is perfect. You should be like my father. And if you hear that and you think, I can't be like God. I'm not like God. I I make all sorts of mistakes. That's right. But God has such a crazy sense of humor. God has such an extraordinary way of doing things. He says, that's okay. You think it's silly for you to be like God? It's no more silly than this younger son coming back, dusty and bedraggled and coated with dust and smelling like a pigsty. And the father says, this is my boy. He looks just like me. And now he's going to look a lot more like me. You should be like the father. That's what the story is about. If there's any prodigal in the story, it's the father. Because if there's anybody who's living wastefully, extravagantly, it's definitely the father. It's the father who's doing this. The father is spending his resources in a really unwise way. He's betting almost everything on this younger son. And that's what God is like. And he says, I'm gonna dress this younger son up. I'm gonna dress all of you up. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to bet all of your resources. I want you to bet your hearts on giving them away to a bunch of people that don't deserve it, just like you don't deserve it. Be like the father, be a prodigal. Do it really big, fly. You can fly, you can do anything because what? Everything that the father has is yours. All of your money, all of your resources, all of your gifts, all of your abilities, all of your friendships, it's all been given to you as a gift. And now you're feasting and you get to be like the father and invite people in. It's really risky. You'll want to do it a little quieter. You'll want to do it with a little bit more circumspection, especially if you're an elder brother. You say, eh, that's a little risky. I'm not sure if I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do it a little bit. I'll serve a little bit. I'll get a little bit involved in my neighbor's life. I'll sort of preach the gospel to people. You know that St. Francis of Assisi preached gospel, the gospel? If necessary, use words. You'll think, I'm doing just a great job just with my general appearance. You know, It's hard to be risky. It's hard to do things big. It's hard to give a lot of money away. It's hard to open up your home and invite people in. But this is the call. You should be like the father. You should be prodigal with everything you have because look at this father. He's extraordinary. He's given you everything. You're walking around with everything paid for, everything taken care of, already invited in. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be it's going to be hard to do things big. I was sitting on my stoop a couple days ago and I was having a cup of tea and Across on the sidewalk came this little sparrow. I think it was a sparrow. I don't know that much about birds, but I think it was a sparrow. And it was walking with such purpose and really determinedly, like getting from one place to another. And it really piqued my interest. I was curious. And so I said, Excuse me, uh, I don't mean to pry, but are you headed somewhere in particular? And the bird stopped and turned and looked at me and said, Yes, I am. (laughs) He said, I'm going to Yankee Stadium to see a game. And I said, the Yankees are on a road trip. There's no game tonight at Yankee Stadium. He said, I know. He said, the next game is on Friday, but it's gonna take me every bit of the next week to get there. You see how short my legs are. (laughs) And I said, "Um, okay, again, none of my business, clearly, but is there something wrong with your wings? He said, no, my wings are fine, totally fine. And I said, well, well, then why don't you fly? And he said, oh, fly, flying's too risky for me. I, I don't wanna fly. Dear Renaissance Church, you need to fly. Be risky with what God has given you. Be a prodigal like your Father who's given you everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything. Everything that you have, you've given to us. The main thing you've given us is your Son, Jesus Christ, who's been given to die for us and to be raised for our justification. And he's ascended on high, and that's, As if that wasn't enough, you've given us your Holy Spirit so that right now we can experience your presence with us. So help us to know that. Help us to know that we belong to you, whether we are elder brothers or whether we're younger brothers, whether we're rule keepers or whether we've blown it. Whatever we've done, we give you thanks that you've invited us back in by your grace. Help us to see that and help us to become like you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.